Welcome to Bible News Press. Our goal is to discuss biblical faith beyond cliches and buzzwords, whether such words are religious or political. Sometimes we sit around the table and fellowship. Sometimes we do a little time travel. It is all part of our journey with our Abba Father, who has given us the key to life. We do it with Jesus, and we do it together. Welcome. Hello, I'm Laura. Today I wanted to share with you some thoughts on Daniel. And I will begin with saying that Jesus himself verified Daniel as a prophet in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. This is the section where Jesus has just told the disciples that the temple will be destroyed, that not one stone will be left on another, and they ask him to tell them, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So he says a few things, and then he gets to verse 15, where he says, When, therefore, you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So right there, you have him verifying that Daniel was a prophet of God and had spoken something that they needed to pay attention to. Right at the beginning of the book of Daniel, you see that Daniel gets to be in the position he does because he is taken captive. He is basically a slave and probably a eunuch of King Nebuchadnezzar because God could not let the nation, the people which he had identified as his own, who had agreed to be his people and who usually, in spite of all their evils, still liked to claim to be his people, he could not let them continue on in a way that made it appear that he approved of the corruption and the evil with which they were living. And you can see how the story comes together more if you also look at 2 Kings chapter 24. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 5 through 8, it talks about um, this particular king, Jehoiakim, that's mentioned in the first part of Daniel. And also in the book of Jeremiah, a lot of chapters, actually chapters 24 through 39, a lot of them have um, passages referring specifically to these kings and to Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, if you look at Jeremiah 29, I'm sorry, 39.11, then it talks about Jeremiah talking to Nebuchadnezzar at a point in time which it seems like Nebuchadnezzar maybe already knew Daniel, and he treats Jeremiah with a lot of respect. So we'll get to that more when I read Jeremiah, but it's pertinent to this whole discussion just because of how it all connects. Then as you read all of this and you become aware that this is about the destruction of Jerusalem in the end and about the discipline of the nation of Israel as a people, and in particular their kings, because they have not followed the ways of God, you realize that there were still some people there who followed God. And that at this point, it might have actually been safer for Daniel to get captured in that first wave. So just an example of sometimes what looks to us like a disaster was possibly uh, very much in Daniel's favor. Daniel's status in the nation of Israel is kind of described before we learn about Daniel in the kind of youths that King Nebuchadnezzar asks to be gathered for him. They were supposed to be of the royal family, uh, nobility, no defect, to be wise, knowledgeable, and as I said, a youth. And that's not really clear. Um, made me wonder, is he 12? Is he 13? Is he 15? Is he 17 years old? Because we do know 
Things like the priests couldn't get into full service until they were 30. Jesus didn't begin his ministry until he was 30. So it's probably at least less than 30. And also in comparison to David, where he was a young man before Goliath. So he could have been a younger teenager. We just don't know. But it's interesting to think about. Because no matter exactly how youthful he was, he was comparatively youthful when he went to um, interpret that first dream, which we'll get to more later. But sticking with chapter one a little bit more, um, there's a passage where Daniel says he would like to not eat the king's dainties, or more specifically, the, the meats and things that the king was offering. This is not because Daniel was a vegetarian. We know for a fact that the Israelites ate meat. It was part of all of their sacrificial um, offerings and things that they did. But the king's meats were probably not clean. They probably were not according to the law, and they might have even been uh, something left over from the offerings that they made to pagan gods. So Daniel, out of his conscience, did not want to show any sign of bowing or worshiping these gods. This is the first example that someone had taught Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego the things of God. They had taught them the law, and they knew the right way to act. So in spite of the bulk of the nation being evil, there were still people in the nation of Israel who were following God's ways. And right away, King Nebuchadnezzar was impressed with them. It states at the end of chapter one that they were considered 10 times better than any of the other wise men. And it states right there that Daniel will serve until the reign of Cyrus. So getting back to this first dream that Daniel interpreted when he was probably still quite youthful, the Chaldeans set this whole thing up because they state there is not a man on earth who can do this referring specifically to King Nebuchadnezzar's request or demand, you should say, that the wise men tell him both what he dreamed and what the dream meant. And then Daniel comes along and confirms that, followed up with, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And that is where this very curious, huge image comes on the scene with this gold head that represents the king of Babylon all the way down to toes and feet of clay and iron, which to me just sound horrible. The the, the picture there, the, the comparison between the gold at the top and all the way down to clay and iron. And then this very curious thing is thrown in in verse 43, where it says, Whereas you saw the iron mixed with miry clay, they will mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they won't cling to one another, even as iron does not mix with clay. This reminded me of Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 4, where it says, When men began to multiply on the surface of the ground, and daughters were born to them, God's sons saw that men's daughters were beautiful, and they took any that they wanted for themselves as wives. Yahweh said, My spirit will not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh, so his days will be one hundred twenty years. The Nephilim were in the earth in those days, and also after that, when God's sons came into men's daughters and had children with them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. I have long thought that the Greek myths, the the men like Hercules and some of these very uh, powerful men told of in these stories are actually because of these verses. That's where these stories come from, these mighty men. 
it can't help you make but wonder what sort of horrible alliances men are going to make in the end days that are going to lead to another particular type of mighty men that will um, come on and cause these desolations in the end times for people who are deceived by them. But even here, these this is the first vision that talks about the history of the world and the kingdoms. It's the first example that it all ends with a kingdom that is never destroyed. All of these visions end with hope of the outcome of the total world. But first, before we get to the other visions, Daniel goes on to talk about what Nebuchadnezzar does with this interpretation of the dream. He takes this knowledge and he perverts it to create an idol for him to worship instead of worshiping the true God that really gave him the answers there. And curiously, Daniel is not part of this story because we know he wouldn't bow down. Only Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have to deal with with making the hard decisions here. And I was particularly uh, taken with how Nebuchadnezzar challenged them on their stance. He says, is it on purpose that you don't worship my God? And then when they affirmed that they placed, properly placed his authority as less than God's, it made Nebuchadnezzar so furious that his face was contorted. And then to prove how hot the furnace was, we have the example of the guards getting burned up, lest you think maybe it wasn't so hot, and that's why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't die. It's made very clear that's not the issue. And I just love the details of this story. Everything from making it so clear that the guards died, to that when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in, they fell down, and then Almost immediately, four men were seen walking loose. Then there's the phrase that describes them as they came out of the middle of the fire. That's just, that's so jam-packed full of imagery and possible meaning um, having to do with tribulation and end times or even persecutions now. And then Nebuchadnezzar commending them because they yielded their bodies that they might not worship any other. They didn't know if they were going to be physically saved, but they were not willing to yield in their earthly bodies. They would die for what was true. Now, to talk about chapter 4, I think it's helpful to go back and think about the image, because we tend to think of our current civilization as higher, more advanced, more prosperous uh, than former civilizations. But according to that image, Nebuchadnezzar, the golden head, was the best, the highest. Um, And when you talk about what gets further down in the timeline, we have the image of the iron and then tending towards being mixed with the clay. And that's probably closer to where we are now. So that puts more in perspective what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. With him as the highest man in history, according to the image, according to how God was describing history. And this man is easily humbled, he's quickly humbled, and he is completely humbled by the word of God when God sees fit. And it also reminds you of things that are said in Romans chapter 1, where when men do not give God the glory that he deserves, when they exchange the truth for a lie, that they become debased. And it's like what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He became basically insane like an animal and wandered around eating grass and living outside for a while until he recognized who God was. When you get to chapter 5, 
Hopefully you realize that actually Babylon and the kings of Babylon have been privy to lots of miraculous messages. They've had dreams, they've had voices from the sky, they've had disembodied hands writing on walls. Now, before the disembodied hands, they had the dreams and the voices from the sky. And Belshazzar, who was either Nebuchadnezzar's son or grandson, depending on how the words are translated, he knew all of this. And in spite of knowing all of these things, he chose to make an in-your-face declaration against God by specifically going and getting the vessels that were recognized as being used for worship for the one true God and drinking out of them at a party in a very disrespectful sort of way. So it wasn't a lack of miracles or a lack of blessings. This was a very prosperous kingdom. This is still part of the golden head. So it wasn't a lack of those things, miracles or blessings, that caused him to choose evil. It was that he wanted to choose evil. And he was arrogant until, quote, the joints of his thighs were loosened. He doesn't seem to make any attempt to repent and doesn't necessarily think anything is going to happen right away, but we know it does. It's like the same night. And then at the very end of the chapter, we find out that Darius, who was about 62 years old, comes to take charge. Why does he say he's 62 years old? My theory is, like with many places where it gives specific Uh, descriptors like this in the Bible, that it's showing these are real people. This is not a made-up story. These are real people with real ages. Now, Darius was obviously also impressed by Daniel right away. But this is an interesting example that when your choices are excellent and they make others look bad, those people frequently try to harm you. This is an interesting uh, thing to consider in view of Romans 13, where it says... In verse 3 of that chapter, for rulers are not a terror to the good work, but to the evil. This here in Daniel and in many other passages where the leaders obviously are a terror to those who are good, gives credence to the idea that what is spoken of in Romans 13 is the ideal of what leaders are supposed to do, and not necessarily a reality, as we all know. Well, we all know how the rest of the story goes. God sent an angel to shut the lion's mouths. No one can harm you without God's permission. He is in control of all things. But yeah, we know that sometimes, for example, with Job, he lets really bad things happen. And we have to remember that being that he is God and all is for his glory, but also that from our perspective here on earth, it might seem long, but in terms of eternity, it is but a blip on the screen, and he will help us through it, and then he has given us glorious promises to look forward to. And Daniel's story here of the lion's den has some similarities with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and that we're really not told a lot about Daniel's reaction. Now, we do get here where he says that God delivered him because he was innocent, but really what we get is a picture of the king being very, very troubled. And partly that reminded me that this was all a testimony for the king and for the people around that Daniel was for his time and he was going to be a testimony that was going to be recorded and shared throughout the kingdom. And in fact, in chapter 6, verses uh, 25 through 27, King Darius makes a decree. So God is working things here in a way that will get the message out about both his power and how he takes care of people. 
Then we get to chapters 7 through 12, where he has the three visions with the same theme, which are also the same theme as the image was. And they are sequential or in um, chronological order. One's in the first year of King Belshazzar, one's in the third year of King Belshazzar, and then the next is after he's conquered and in Darius's first year. And when you stop for a moment and realize the importance of these visions, it makes you wonder if the princes of the powers of the air that we hear about later when Daniel's praying and Gabriel comes to talk to him, weren't trying to do away with Daniel because of his witness in both the world and in the angelic kingdom. The essence of these three visions are that all earthly kingdoms will be overthrown. And if you look in each of the visions, you find language talking about that. So in the first vision in chapter 7, verse 13, it says he saw someone coming with the clouds like a son of man. And in chapter 9, verse 27, it talks about even to the full end of wrath. And then in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, at the time your people will be delivered. So Daniel's visions cover things that were prophetic then, but are historic now and are still prophetic because we have the interval between the 62 weeks and the one week that is talked about in chapter 9, verse 26. It says war will be even to the end. So you have before that the city is destroyed and it talks about the war and the desolations. And then it talks about the firm covenant with the last week for his people. Then there are some things in chapter 12 that are pretty sobering. In verse 2, it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Then it goes on to say in verse 10, the second part of it, But the wicked will do wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. The implication is that the wicked will continue to do wickedly. And again, like Belshazzar, they will choose to do wickedly. And it is reminiscent of Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 32, where it says they became vain in their reasoning and they exchanged truth for a lie. And so they don't want the truth. They are choosing to not choose God. They are against him. My husband and I were discussing this idea of everlasting punishment or everlasting contempt recently, and we were doing some research and we heard something in a longer Bible discussion, which I won't link to because I think I can summarize it adequately, and that is sometimes we get the idea that after Jesus comes again, that people are just going to be punished because of their sin on earth and their rejection here. But these verses in Daniel give credence to this one Bible teacher's um, supposition, and that is, why do we think that they stop sinning then? If they have rejected God, there's every sign that they will keep rejecting him. Even in Revelation, it talks about in the end times when all of the miracles and the hard things come on them. And and it's like they're seeing God face to face there again, but they gnash their teeth at him. They're angry with him. It's like some of the Pharisees when they saw Jesus's miracles and they could see that he was fulfilling prophecies. They didn't choose him. They rejected him. And some people just reject God. Now, verse 4 of chapter 12 and also verse 13 put in perspective what Daniel was dealing here with all these visions. It can seem like maybe he had some exciting stuff, but you can also tell from other places how troubled he was by these things and how they drained his spirit and made him feel sick. 
So it apparently wasn't an easy thing to receive these visions that we think of as so wonderful. And not only that, but they weren't really for him. In verse 4, it says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. Many will run back and forth and knowledge will be increased. And then in verse 13, But go your way until the end, for you will rest and will stand in your inheritance at the end of days. These visions were for any of us or anybody who will live in those times. They were a burden of mystery for Daniel, and he he was doing a job by recording them and being God's prophet, not unlike Jeremiah, who had all of those lamentable things to tell the people of Israel and, and was abused for it. But it was Daniel's time. It was where God placed him to do these things and to speak on his behalf and to, to get these things recorded for the people who would need to hear them later. And last but not least, I wanted to address the, the number of times where the angel comes and says that Daniel was greatly beloved. And it reminded me of where in the book of John, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And at a first reading, that might come across as arrogant, but if you stop and think about it, he's just reveling in the fact that Jesus loves him. And then I was reminded also of the parable of of the one lost sheep out of the 99, how Jesus went for that one sheep, and then the thief on the cross who he saved. So while all of these visions are about all of history and they seem so grand, God loves us as individuals. He made each one of us on purpose to know us and placed us where we are in our time to do the things that he meant for us to do whether they be great in men's eyes or small in men's eyes. We are all highly valued and loved by God. That's it for this session with Thoughts on Daniel. And I'm going to be starting to read the letter from Peter that's called 1 Peter. And I'll probably go ahead and read the second letter right after that. Thanks for letting me share with you. That is the Bible News Press segment for today, but not the end of our journey. 